Amen. What is the best thing that anyone has ever done for you? Think about that for just a minute. What's the best thing anyone has ever done for you? Maybe there was a time when you were in a financial bind and someone came to your aid and helped you out in that difficulty. Or maybe there, there's a time when you were, you were sick or you had some sort of ailment and a, a doctor or nurse or other health care provider uh, provided you with the care that you needed. Maybe there's a time when, when someone risked life and limb for your well-being. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had someone pay the ultimate price for you? Have you ever had someone give up their own life in order to save you? There's a story uh, that happened, an event that happened uh, several years ago where a dad paid that ultimate price. He made that sacrifice for his son. And I want to read the news report to you. Listen to this report. On January 24, 2012... A devoted father sacrificed his own life to save his disabled son. When a car raced toward them as they walked together, George Tyson, 61, pushed his son, Gary, out of the path of the oncoming car and took the full impact himself. He was killed almost instantly. His 32-year-old son was airlifted to the hospital and later discharged after being treated for minor injuries and shock. Mr. Tyson's distraught family praised him for making the ultimate heroic sacrifice which saved the life of their son and brother. Wow. What an incredible demonstration of love. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that? What if a, a, a husband or wife Father, mother, brother, sister, friend, or even a, a complete stranger made that ultimate sacrifice in your place. You have your Bibles turned to John chapter 19. John 19, this Sunday for Palm Sunday and, and next week for Resurrection Sunday, we're taking a break from our study in Luke to look at John's account of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection from John 19 and 20 in a series we are calling John's Easter Story. We've looked at, over the years, we've looked at Matthew's Easter Story and Mark's last year was Luke. Now we're in John. And this morning we are going to learn that, that someone has in fact made this ultimate sacrifice for us. Someone has in fact laid their life down in our place. And we are going to explain why this act of self-sacrifice is the greatest, most selfless, most important work anybody has ever done for anyone anywhere in the history 
of the world. And though I'm sure many of you are familiar with where we are in the story, let me bring you up to uh, where we are in the text we're going to look at today. We're going to be jumping into verse 16. So quite a bit has already happened. Jesus, of course, has entered into Jerusalem. We read that earlier in the service in John chapter 12. And he has already been betrayed by Judas. He has been arrested. He has been denied by Peter. He's been tried. He's been beaten. And he's getting ready to be let off, to be crucified. And there are so many things that John could focus on in his gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion. He could have talked about how horrible it was to die by crucifixion. He could, he could have described in great detail the, the, the horror and the agony and the pain of being crucified. He could have also focused in on, on how difficult it was for Jesus' friends and family to witness him being crucified in this way. Many pastors go there, but, but as we look at John 19, we see John doesn't really focus very much on these details. He could have selected and highlighted a number of those things when giving this account. But instead what John does is he shows his readers the greatness and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of a crucified king. He shows the marvelous work of God here in this dark day. And boy, we need to be looking for the marvelous work of God in our dark day today, don't we? And we've been focusing in on that. So this morning, as I talk about the crucifixion, I'm going to attempt to do John's account justice by focusing in on those things as well. As we talk about the cross this morning, I'm not going to take the usual approach that many take in trying to, to paint a picture of how agonizing it was to die by crucifixion, though it was agonizing. I'm not going to focus in on how painful it might have been for those looking on Jesus' loved ones to witness Him die by way of crucifixion. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what I believe John intended to do when he wrote this passage by focusing in as well on the majesty and the power and the beauty and the glory of our crucified king. This morning, we're going to discuss four ways the cross exalts Christ. Notice number one. First, this event, the crucifixion, exalts Christ in the way it fulfills Scripture. The cross fulfills Scripture. That is a major emphasis of John in this passage. Verse 24, he says, this was to fulfill Scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Do you think John's trying to tell us something here? Bible Study 101 tells us when God says something once, we need to listen. It's in God's Word. We need to study it. If he says something twice, we really need to listen. If he says something more than twice in a, in a single passage, we need to focus in because this is a major emphasis that God is trying to make here. God is, is showing us here that the crucifixion of Christ, though tragic and horrific, is all a part of God's divine plan. While John highlights four prophecies showing how 
the work Christ does at Calvary fulfilled Scripture. There, there are tons more found here. I mean, Jesus' death alone here in John 19 fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. John MacArthur said this, look at this quote up on the screen. He says, every Old Testament picture of the final sacrifice, every type, every prophecy about one who would die, it's all resolved here in Jesus Christ. So so just the mention of Jesus' death here fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. So let's move quickly through certain specific ones because we could really spend several Sundays looking at John's account and going back to the Old Testament and explaining where we see that, okay? We don't have time here. We've got to move quickly. First look at verse 16. John says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. In other translations, it says they led him away. Think about that phrase for just a moment. That is a short, seemingly insignificant phrase that we could just easily pass over. But it's extremely important. You see... History tells us that because of the the scourging and the beating of those being crucified and because many were often paralyzed with fear, they had to be carried to their place of crucifixion, often driven or carted off to their place of crucifixion. That was common. That, That happened often. But notice here, Jesus wasn't drugged. He wasn't driven. He was led. That means he didn't go against his will, but he went without resistance. Folks, that is extremely important, and that fulfills Scripture. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, hundreds of years before this event, he says he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah said that when the Messiah goes to his death, he will not be driven, he will not be drugged, he will not be forced against his will, but will, like a lamb, be led to the slaughter. Look at verse 17 of John 19. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Notice the phrase, went out. Again, seemingly unimportant phrase that we might just gloss over. It's extremely important. You see, that phrase indicates that Jesus went out of the city when he was crucified. He was crucified outside Jerusalem. In this day, they had a law that said no one could be crucified within the city limits, within the boundary of that city. So those being crucified were led out of the city. Now, now think about this. Though the Jews tried several times to kill Jesus, we're told when Jesus was in Nazareth, the the hometown of Jesus, the religious leaders tried to throw him off of Mount Precipice. They tried to stone him in the city. They were not able. Why? Because Scripture is clear that his sacrifice had to be offered outside the city. Old Testament offerings, Old Testament sacrifices were pictures of Christ. And one type of offering was what was called the sin offering. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 14, we're told this about the sin offering. 
But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. You see, sin offerings were burnt outside the camp. We're also told this in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 12. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, we're told repeatedly that sin offerings were offered outside the camp. Think about this. Who is the ultimate sin sacrifice? Jesus, right? Where then did Jesus need to be taken as a sacrifice for sin? Outside the camp. Outside Jerusalem. Look at Hebrews 13, 11 through 12. The author of Hebrews says... For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus had to be sacrificed outside the camp, which is why he is sent out of the city to be crucified. Verse 18, we're told that when Jesus reached Golgotha, there they crucified him. Jesus died a Roman death. This too fulfills tons of prophecy. Remember, Jesus said of himself in, in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That is a reference to his crucifixion. He's looking back at that Old Testament story where God's people are being judged by God and they're dying and to be saved Moses puts a serpent a bronze serpent on a staff and he lifts it up and those who look upon it in faith they are healed Jesus is saying I'm going to be lifted up in this way I'm going to be crucified and those who look to me and trust in me in faith will be healed spiritually Zechariah 12 Psalm 22, we're told that the Messiah will be pierced. He'll be pierced in both his hands and his feet. Again, books written hundreds of years before the cross. Look back at John 19, end of verse 18. John says with him, with Christ, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus was crucified with two criminals on either side of him on a criminal's cross, which on the one hand is terribly unjust, but it also fulfills Scripture as well. Remember that one of them trusting Christ alone for salvation. And we're told in Isaiah 53, read that this week. It's a part of your Scripture reading, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But in Isaiah 53 verse 12, listen to what Isaiah says. He was numbered with the transgressors, with the wicked, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will die a criminal's death for the sake of criminals. He also says in Isaiah 53, 9, that his grave is with the wicked. Jesus was buried in, in someone else's tomb, in a family tomb of Joseph, and, and, and there he is going to be buried with sinners in need of salvation, the bodies of sinners in need of salvation. Guess what? There's more. We're not, we're not done yet. Skip down to verse 23 of John 19. John says this. 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, very nice. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. John comes right out and tells us here that this is prophetic. This is fulfilling scripture. He tells us these men who were dividing up Christ's garments were fulfilling scripture. Look at Psalm 22, beginning in verse 16. We're told this in Psalm 22. Read it this week. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now let me ask you, how did these men know to do this? Did they know about this prophecy and say, hey, we got to do this in this certain way to fulfill Psalm 22? Surely you don't believe that. They had no idea about this prophecy. They had no idea that their actions, though evil, are fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years back, letter by letter. You know who did know? God knew. God knew, and we see him here making moves providentially to fulfill his word. And yet, in no sense is the guilt removed from these men. They are responsible. While God is sovereign, man is responsible. So you have this this group of, of wicked, callous, godless soldiers carrying out the wicked, evil acts of, of gambling for and dividing up Christ's clothes as he suffers and dies on the cross. Yet as they carry out this wicked plan, they are fulfilling God's word letter by letter. Wow! <laughs> That's amazing! There is so much more in this text. In the following verses, John mentions something that Jesus says that fulfills Scripture. We'll look at that here in just a moment. And he also mentions that none of Jesus' bones are broken. Another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There's so much more we don't have time to discuss this morning. What should that tell you and me? It should tell us that God is behind it all. The only explanation is that all of these events, they are happening in accordance with the divine plan of God. You see why this event, though though seemingly tragic, should be viewed as glorious and magnificent. You see why Christ though seemingly unsuccessful and often viewed as lowly, is to be viewed as as powerful, highly exalted, majestic, and magnificent. 
at the cross while Christ was, was victimized and died at the hands of lawless men. He was not defeated. He was the victor. He, he, no one took his life from him, we're told. He laid it down by, by his own power. He laid his own life down to win the victory over sin and death forever to destroy the works of the devil and to accomplish salvation for all who repent of their sin and believe on him alone for salvation. We see, like we said last week, in the darkest of times, God doing the most magnificent and glorious of works. Take comfort in that today, believers. So, through the fulfillment of Scripture, we see that Christ, though crucified, is exalted. The second way this event, crucifixion, exalts Christ is in the way it highlights Christ's rule. The cross highlights Christ's rule. Look at verses 19 through 22. John says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In this day, when one was being led away to be crucified, there was someone who had the job of carrying a sign before that person. And on that sign was written the offense that they were being crucified for. So if one was a, a thief, one would carry a sign that said thief, and then they would attach it to the cross. Well, notice in this passage that because no crime had been committed, according to Pilate, because remember time and time again he said, I find no, no fault in this man, and because I believe he wanted to get back at the Jews for forcing his hand, for blackmailing him and forcing him to do something he did not want to do, which is crucify Jesus. Pilate, I believe, takes an opportunity to strike back at them. He has put on Jesus' sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And this landed. This had the appropriate response from, from the Jews. This got all over them for several reasons. One, because it said Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we've talked about this before, but Nazareth in this day, it was hick town. For you Cars fans, it was the Radiator Springs of the Middle East. Nathaniel, one of the disciples, when he heard Jesus was from Nazareth, he responded with, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The prestigious city was Jerusalem. So, so that got all over him. But, but even worse than that, more troublesome, was that phrase, King of the Jews. Now think about why that would bother them. Think about where Jesus is. He is on the cross. And Pilate is saying, I believe very sarcastically and jokingly, here is the king of the Jews. Think about that, what that says about them. Notice Pilate goes out of his way 
to make sure everybody gets the message. They were crucified in an area just right outside the city, lots of traffic coming in and out, and Pilate has that message written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews, in Latin, which was the language of the Romans, and Greek, which was the language of most everyone at that time in the, in the known world. He wants to make sure everyone knows it. And again, Jews don't like this one bit. The Jewish religious leaders, the chief priest of the Jews, he says, don't write that. Don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now that would change things, right? Because one says that he is, and the other says he's an imposter. He's a fake. He's making a false claim, which is what landed him on the cross. But Pilate finally gets a backbone, and in verse 22 he says, What I have written, I have written. What I've done, I've done. There's no changing it. Oh, again, don't you know that got all over the Jewish religious leaders? This was devastating to their pride. This probably ate them up inside to see this man whom many of them viewed as a wicked blasphemer being publicly declared as their king. But get this, here's the ironic thing about this. While Pilate was being cynical and sarcastic, this message that he declares from Calvary is absolutely true. It was true. They had crucified the king, the Lord of glory. Pilate was exactly right. Written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek is the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel, you have a crucified king the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. So while Pilate wants to strike back at the Jews, he ends up declaring the gospel from the cross. And, and I don't know this for sure, but I'd like to think that, that that inscription, because it's mentioned right before his conversion in Luke's account, was the catalyst that got the thief, of the, cross, the thief on the cross thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe, just maybe, that inscription was the instrument God used to bring him to saving faith. I mean, think about Luke's account. You remember what he says to Jesus? He looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. So the cross exalts Christ because it highlights his rule. The third way the cross exalts Christ is in the way it demonstrates his love. You know, the selfless love of Christ is seen on display in so many ways at, at Calvary. One, the most important way, of course, is him laying his life down for sinners like you and me. We learn in Romans that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. So, so it's seen, his selfless love is seen in him laying his life down. But, but, but look here in particular, one way in particular that John points out to us is in verses 25 through 27. Look beginning in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Stop there for a minute. Notice there's, there's four ladies here standing boldly at the foot of the cross. It took boldness to stand like these ladies do for Christ. Verse 26 
when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So thankfully, guys, there's John. John's there. He's representing all the other disciples are nowhere to be found, but he's there. And he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So think about what we have here. This is something. One of the ladies at the foot of the cross was Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. She's there watching her son die. And, and when he sees her, he has compassion on her from the cross. And he gives her a new son. Now, now, this is important. Context helps us here. In this day, in Jewish culture, it was the responsibility of the oldest son to take care of his mother and father when they got old. And so, in, in this day, a great fear from a firstborn was that they would not outlive their parents to be able to properly care for them. We see that's the case here with Jesus and his mother. She's going to outlive him on earth. And so as her earthly son, he is fulfilling his earthly duties, taking care of his mother. And while we know that Jesus had other brothers, they were not followers of Jesus at this time. So he gives her a good, strong spiritual replacement in John. Something else extremely significant is taking place in this act. We see Jesus through this last act of being her earthly son. He's transitioning from that to being her redeemer. Mary needed redemption as well. She needed a redeemer. And that is what Christ provided her as well at Calvary. But notice here, the selfless love of Christ while he is completing this great and glorious work. While he's accomplishing the most amazing task in the history of the universe, while he is bearing the burden no one else could have possibly have endured in the midst of the darkest moment in human history, Christ thinks not of himself but of his mother and his beloved disciple. Hopefully that gives you a glimpse into the great and deep selfless love of Jesus Christ. Think about that and then Think about the ways in which you respond when the storms of this life hit. If you're anything like me, your focus turns inward on yourself and your own circumstances. Earlier this week, we were here at the church. I was here with my, my mother and father-in-law. They're missionaries to the Philippines, and, and the situation is bad in the Philippines right now. And we were raising money for them. And many would say, this is a bad time to raise money. And, and I reminded those during that live uh, Facebook live stream, I reminded those viewers that our church, we have a history of coming to one another's aid in the darkest and most difficult of times. You remember in the book of Acts, Paul went around, he was collecting an offering from the churches for the Christians in Jerusalem, for the church there. And those churches they gave, not out of their abundance, not out of their wealth, they gave sacrificially. They gave sacrificially to support the work. We have a history of doing that, coming to the aid of missionaries and, and churches and believers. Believers, your church needs you now while you're away to give and support the ministry here so that we can continue to do this great work of equipping saints for the work 
of ministry. Jesus gave us that perfect example of selfless love. While enduring the weight of the cross, he showed compassion toward others. So the, the cross exalts Christ because it demonstrates his love. Fourth and final way the crucifixion exalts Christ is in the way it showcases Christ's power. In John's account of the crucifixion, he shows that Jesus knows what he is doing and he is in complete control. Throughout his earthly ministry, Christ was on a divine schedule and he is always right on time. He's in perfect sync with the Father and the reason why is because he and the Father are one. Christ also knew what scripture needed to be fulfilled and when. Look at verse 28. After this... After addressing his mother and his disciple, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Notice before he says it is finished, he says, I thirst. Christ knew there was one last thing that needed to be said, one last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before all the work there at Calvary was accomplished. When he says, I thirst, he is fulfilling that last bit of prophecy in his earthly ministry found in Psalm 69. And the soldiers, they didn't have to respond, but of course they did under the, the, the direction of God, under his divine leading and hand of providence, they filled a sponge with sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to the mouth of Jesus. Now this is significant. The wine represents what Jesus told them at the Last Supper. Remember that? The wine is his blood. And notice a hyssop branch is dipped into the wine and placed on Jesus' lips. Hyssop branch was used to spread blood over the doorpost during Passover in Exodus 12. How significant then is it that it is used at the cross on the final and greatest Passover lamb? Amen? And Jesus knows all this has to be fulfilled before his death. He knows what needs to be done and when, and then notice in verse 30, after he had taken a drink, he said, it is finished, to die, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, folks, that is not a cry of defeat. Jesus is not saying here, I'm finished, I'm done for. He's saying it's completed. The work that the Father sent me to accomplish, it's done, it's finished. And, and then notice what he does. This is so good. Don't, don't pass over it too quickly. John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk and, and, and suddenly kill over. John says he bowed his head. The Greek word means to gently lay or pillow your head. Then it says he gave up his spirit. When Jesus accomplished the work the Father sent him to accomplish, he gently pillowed his head and he gave up his life. Remember in, in John 10, Jesus made it clear, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. No one took Christ's life from him, he laid it down on his own terms, by his own power, and he did not lay it down, he did not give it up until all things were finished, until salvation was completed. And folks, the application for us here is very, very simple. Listen, Christ did not give up his spirit until our salvation was complete. 
When Christ died, there was nothing left to do. The ransom was paid. Divine justice was satisfied. Sins were covered. There's nothing to add to that work. It's been done all for you. I've said this before, and I need to say it again and again so that you get it. There is nothing you bring to the table when it comes to your salvation other than the sin that makes you in need of what Christ has done. And you cannot bring any works with you before the Lord and be trusting in those works. Paul says very clearly in in Romans chapter 4 that if you do that, it will not be counted to you as righteousness. We must come empty-handed. Nothing in our hands. And fall before the feet of King Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, we're going to sing it here in just a moment. Rock of Ages. One of my favorite lines in that hymn is when he says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's how you got to come. You got to come empty handed. Nothing in your hands. It's all been done. It's been done for you on your behalf. Jesus has paid it all, and all to him you owe. He's done it all. You got to come empty handed. God has provided a way for guilty sinners like you and me to be made right with Him. He sent His Son, the King, to earth to accomplish salvation. He did it by way of His death, by way of His crucifixion. He he laid His life down. He, He took it up again. On the third day, nothing was left undone. Christ, our crucified King, has done it all for us and all that is required of you is for you to come empty-handed and simply trust in Him alone for your salvation. Have you made that commitment to Christ? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you laid your life down? Have you been saved? If not, I invite you to today. Turn from your sin. Lay down your life before the King of glory. Surrender to His Lordship today and be saved. Let's pray together.